In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explains that glorious experiences don't always produce godly living. And he uses the Old Testament Hebrews as a point in fact. These people witnessed the supernatural on almost a daily basis. The glory cloud, the parting of the Red Sea, the miracle of manna, water gushing from the rock. And speaking of water gushing from the rock, check out verse 4, Paul's footnote. He says that rock was Christ. You remember the first time that God told Moses to bring water from the rock? He told him to strike the rock. He took his rod, he hit it, water gushed forth. Amazing. The second time, though, God spoke to Moses about that, he said, speak to the rock. But at the time, Moses was so frustrated with the people that his anger got the best of him. And he took his rod and he struck it a second time. And his mistake, remember, cost him entrance into the promised land. And we don't really understand why until we come here to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because here Paul tells us that the rock was Christ. It was a type of Christ. And Jesus needs to be struck but once as payment for our sin. After that, all we have to do is speak the word of faith and salvation will come. He was struck but once. The problem was that Moses messed up the godly type, the biblical model. And that's why Moses' sin was so costly, because it violated the sacred analogy. Guys, the Hebrews... They were privy to miracle after miracle, and yet they still lusted for evil things. Think of it. They saw the glory of heaven, and yet they died on the desert floor. Paul says in verse 6 that this experience is an example to us. Just because we have glorious experiences, just because we're amazed by the spiritual gifts among us, all of these experiences don't necessarily produce godly living. The Corinthians pursued idolatry. Some even committed sexual immorality. They tempted the Lord. They grumbled and murmured just like the Hebrews. Let's beware lest we fall into the same mistakes. Like the Hebrews who rode that wave of excitement after the exodus. At times, our severest temptations come on the heels of our greatest victories. And this is why Paul tells us, don't drop your guard. He says in chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It reminds me of Jose Cabrero, one of Spain's famous matadors. After thrusting his sword into the bull, Jose spun around to bask in the glory of the crowd for just a few more minutes. What the matador didn't realize was the animal was still alive and was ready to make a final lunge. When Jose dropped his guard, the bull ran his horn through Jose's heart and he died. And pride has led to many, many, many a person's downfall. He says, beware. Take note from these Hebrews. Just because you've had spiritual highs doesn't mean that's going to produce holiness. You've got to walk with the Lord. He says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Have you been there? The temptation situation. Your palms get sweaty. Your knees start knocking. Your heart starts beating. It's a temptation situation. It's a tough place to be. But when the next time you find yourself there, remember four truths. First of all, you're not alone. It says that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Other people have gone through the same temptation. You're not alone in that temptation. Other people have been there and have overcome. It's been said temptation is the price for being human. We all are tempted in the very same ways. And when we are, remember that we have each other for strength. Don't be alienated to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Our empathy for, for one another can be a needed source of strength. Second, remember that God is faithful. He doesn't abandon you in the temptation situation. It's not a sin to be tempted. God is there for you. He will be with you. Third, the temptation will be made bearable. God refuses to let us be tempted more than we can handle. At times, He will temper the temptation. At other times, He will increase our resistance. But He won't let that temptation become more than we can handle. And then the fourth thing to remember is there is always a way out. Every temptation comes with an escape. It's up to us to look for it, but it's there. Our job is to find the exit and run for daylight. And speaking of running from temptation, he says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Now, in chapter eight, Paul had said that the believers were free to go into the market and to buy the meat that had been offered as sacrifice in the pagan temples. But some of these Corinthians had gone too far. You see, they missed the friends that they had hung out with back in their idolatrous days. So if meat sacrifices to idols is no big deal, why not return to the pagan temple on special days? Why not socialize in the midst of the pagan rituals? After all, it's all just a matter of custom. Paul distinguishes, though, the difference between sitting at home and eating a burger and doing so in a temple where it would be perceived by others as an act of idol worship. When we... As Corinthians, or when the Corinthians and we as Christians came to the Lord's table to eat and to partake of the bread and of the wine, they called it communion. Very appropriate. Because what are we doing at the Lord's table? We are communing with the Lord. Paul brings this up because he's saying to the Corinthians, when you go to the altar of an idol, when you enter into some idolatrous pagan practice, what are you doing but communing with the power and the spirits behind that practice. The bread and the wine stir up our faith. They bring us in communion with Christ. The symbols put us in touch with the Holy Spirit. And Paul says to come to the table of an idol and participate in a worship activity puts you in contact with the spirit behind that worship. And verse 21 makes it clear that demons are behind all idolatry. Paul concludes, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. His point is, is that these pagan rituals are dangerous and open us up to evil influences. Now, here's a modern day example. 
a fortune cookie. A fortune cookie is nothing more than a mixture of flour and sugar. We know that. But inside there is a message. There is a fortune. It's a form of sorcery. It's a means of predicting the future apart from the word and the will of God. Now, the message inside the cookie doesn't contaminate the cookie. I enjoy eating the cookie, but I never read the message. I always tear it up. I always toss it out because I don't want to participate in an activity that has demonic overtones. Paul is saying to these Corinthians who had visited these pagan temples that though the meat that they ate there was innocuous, the temple rituals were not. Demons were behind those rituals. And their participation in these practices exposed them to evil influences. Verse 23 repeats the Christian ethic. What a broad, sweeping ethic. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Anything goes, but everything is not beneficial. And here's how we should decide on a questionable activity. Does it build me up in my faith? And does it glorify God? Paul says in verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Good advice. Face your actions, not on your empty stomach, but on the impact you're going to have on other people. As Paul says in verse 33, Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Betty was a clerk at a Christian bookstore. And one day she was complimenting a visiting pastor on his wonderful church. And she, in the midst of the conversation, just sort of blurted out, Oh, Pastor Tom, I just love your body. Well, needless to say, that caused a few heads to turn there in the bookstore. I can empathize, empathize, though, with Betty. When I look at you. I tend to want to turn to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, how I love your body. Because we are the body of Christ. We're his hands. We're his feet here on this earth. And Paul loved the church. And that's why he was so concerned about the problems that had developed within the body of Christ here at Corinth. Even their public assemblies had gotten out of hand. When the church met, it was supposed to be a time of encouragement. Instead, it had become a time of chaos. Their meetings, in fact, were doing more harm than good. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul addresses the issues that were causing these disruptions and this disrespect in the church's public meetings. In the first half of chapter 11, Paul brings up the Corinthians' disregard for male and female roles within the church. He says in chapter 11, verse 3, I want you to know... That the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now notice, the head of Christ is God. But does that make Christ any less one or equal to God? Of course not. You see, apparently the relationship between members of the Godhead is based on order, not value. Not importance, but on the role that they're to play. Someone leads and someone follows. That's why it says that the head of Christ is God. They're equal, but they have different roles to play. 
Likewise, the fact that the man is head over the woman doesn't make him better, doesn't make him smarter, doesn't make him more talented. Hey, it's obvious that women are more talented than men. Just watch them both wrap a Christmas present. (laughs) I mean, it's obvious. Women got a lot more on the ball than men. The fact that the man is head over the woman isn't a reflection on the fact that one is superior, one is inferior. Their relationship is an ordered equality. Both are of equal value, but God has assigned them different roles. In fact, he says in verses 8 and 9, For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Male and female roles, guys, go all the way back to Adam and Eve. The man has been called to lead. The woman has been called to be submissive and to follow. I know that's out of fashion these days, but I'm not making it up. I'm not writing a script. This is the Bible. You can believe it or you can buck it. Now, here was the problem in Corinth. In the Oriental culture, wearing a veil and long hair were symbols of a woman's submission. When these Christian sisters threw off those traditions, they were making a statement that misrepresented their biblical convictions. They weren't questioning whether they should be submissive to their husbands. They they knew that they should be. But in throwing off their veils, in cutting their hair, what they were doing was sending a message to the world that they didn't want to be under their husband's authority. They wanted to be independent of their husband's. And that's why Paul tells them in these verses to make sure that when they're praying in public, that their heads are properly covered. Now, again, how does this apply to us today? Obviously, in the 21st century America, the symbols have changed. But I want you to know that the principle remains the same. A veil no longer means for you and me what it did in Paul's day. Today, if you see a woman wearing a veil, it probably means she had a bad hair day. or She didn't make it to the beautician or... Or whatever. It doesn't mean that she's rebelling against her husband. A veil no longer means what it did in Paul's day. But there are symbols that do reflect a biblical chain of command. For example, taking your husband's last name. Wearing a wedding ring. Certain work in living arrangements. They all convey a woman's attitude toward her husband. And Paul is simply saying that women need to take these symbols seriously. Ladies, the world needs to know that you've embraced the biblical values, that you see the need in living under the authority that God has planned for the family. The world needs to see that. The world needs to know that. And it's wrong for you to make statements to the world that violate your own convictions. Paul also mentions this business about hair. You see, in ancient cultures, The prostitutes were the only ones who cut their hair short. Most women wore long, flowing hair. Again, a Christian woman was free, in a sense, to cut her hair or to shave her head. But why go out into public knowing that she'll be mistaken as a prostitute? I mean, what kind of a witness is that? The teaching really gets hairy in verse 14. It says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, in general, nature does dictate 
that women have longer hair than men. In the younger years, men can sort of buck this. They can grow their hair long. But in the end, nature gets the last laugh. Because bald heads usually prevail among men. And in the end, your wife's hair will be longer than yours. Trust me. Today, hair length is probably more of a fashion statement than anything else. And who's to say what constitutes long and what constitutes short? I think it's proper that Paul, and you understand that Paul never made an attempt to define what long, what meant long or what meant short. But it's interesting. Sometimes hair length does go beyond making a fashion statement and it does make a philosophical statement. Think back in the 1960s. Long hair among men. What? That was symbol, a symbol of a cultural revolution. That was a symbol of throwing off biblical roles and, and throwing off biblical values. In the 70s, the feminists did what? They cut their hair short. Isn't it interesting? They hear 2,000 years later, you know, we're dealing with some of these very same issues. Hair length can represent a rebellious attitude. It can represent a throwing off of biblical roles and values. And if that sort of thing is going on in your life, then you don't want to make the wrong statement. Paul's whole point is to be careful that you're not misinterpreted. That it's better to curtail your freedom than it is to make a statement that contradicts your faith in biblical truth. Now, the second half of chapter 11 deals with the abuses that were occurring at the Lord's table in the communion celebration. Again, the public gatherings of the church were doing more harm than good. In fact, Paul says in verse 17, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The early church shared communion as part of a larger meal. They called it the agape feast. This was sort of the ancient equivalent of our wing fling or a church pot luck. And it was also an opportunity for the poor members of the fellowship to get a good meal once a week. But some of the Corinthians were using the pot luck as an opportunity to pig out. Verse 21 says they were barging ahead of others and leaving no food for those at the end of the line. It was disgraceful. It was rude. It was just plain selfish. And in verse 22, Paul says to them, if you want a meal, just stay home and eat. It reminds me of the little boy who was participating in his first communion. As he took the wafer in the cup, his father leaned over and whispered, son, this was the Lord's last supper. He looked at the elements and then he looked up at his dad and he said, they sure didn't give him much, did they? Well, rather than focusing on the meaning of this meal, the Corinthians were fixated on the meal itself. This was supposed to be an agape feast, a love feast, not a let's get fat feast. Paul recalls the commandment that they had received from Jesus. Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It was all to be done in remembrance of Jesus. And this is what they had forgotten and why the whole thing had become an indulgence of selfishness. Chapter 12 begins. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, 
I do not want you to be ignorant. As we'll see, the Holy Spirit was active in the Corinthian church. Spiritual gifts were common, but they weren't always being used with common sense. In fact, because of their ignorance, the gifts were being misused, sometimes being abused. Understand the Corinthians, though, they were Gentiles. And they had spent their whole lives long worshiping mute idols. Now they were excited to have a God who was talking back. Prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues were all online communications with God. The Corinthians were now serving a God who was willing to speak to them and speak through them. No wonder they got excited. No wonder their tendency was to get just a little carried away. I'd rather be in a church that was a little carried away than in a church that was dead as a doorknob. But with this excitement came danger. Deception was possible. And this is why Paul provides a test right up the top in verse 3. He says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, guys, just because a message is prefaced, thus saith the Lord, doesn't mean it really is. You have to test it. And ultimately, the test is this. Does it harmonize with Scripture and does it honor Jesus? In chapter 12, Paul is stressing that there are many different types of spiritual gifts. And each one is of value. In verses 4 through 6, Paul seems to point to three types of spiritual gifts. In verse 4, he calls them simply gifts. In verse 5, ministries. In verse 6, manifestations. And I believe these represent three categories of spiritual gifts. We have the motivations of the Spirit, verse 4. We have the ministries of the Spirit, verse 5. And we have the manifestations of the Spirit, verse 6. The gifts or basic motivations that the Spirit plants in our hearts are listed in Romans 12. You might want to turn there later and look at them. The ministries of the Spirit are outlined in Ephesians chapter 4. And the manifestations of the Spirit are here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Once there was a lumberjack who bought a chainsaw. The guy at the hardware store told him he could chop four times the amount of wood with the chainsaw than he could with his old axe. But after several tries, the lumberjack was frustrated. In fact, he was chopping less wood, not more. And when he returned to the hardware store, the manager cranked the chainsaw to determine the problem. And the moment he cranked it, the lumberjack said to him, what's that noise? Here's the way to think of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are God's power tools. They're God's power tools. They make our job easier. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're supernatural abilities that are made possible by the Spirit's power. They go beyond our learned skills. They go beyond our natural abilities. And we need them to do the work that God has called us to do. Paul lists nine manifestations of the Spirit here. And we can kind of categorize them in in three groups. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits. These are gifts of knowledge or insight. They they reveal to us things that we couldn't possibly know other than the work of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of insight. Another group, faith. Gifts of healings. 
working of miracles. These are gifts of action. Supernatural empowerments to do special deeds for the cause of Christ. And then lastly, the gifts of insight, prophecy, different kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. These all provide spiritual communication. And note the guiding principle in all of these gifts. Verse 7. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for what? For the profit of all. The purpose of spiritual gifts is not the pride of a few. It's the profit of all. It's not so that people can get up and show off and attract attention to themselves. No, it's so that everyone can be benefited and blessed and strengthened. Spiritual gifts should make us more others-centered. In chapter 12, God uses the human body as an analogy for his church. Your body consists of trillions of cells, of ten major organs, and they're all working in harmony with one another. The body is a blend of both unity and diversity, and so is the body of Christ. We all have gifts and callings that need each other. In verse 17, Paul asks the question, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So what if you're a perfect baby blue 2020 eyeball? If we pulled you out of the body by yourself and just kind of set you on the table, by yourself you'd be nothing. You'd be of no good to anybody. What if you were a capable hand? But then we took you out of the body and we set you down on the table here. I mean, we could vote about it, but, but you, you know, we could take a vote on your usefulness. You know, how useful would you be? I know you'd lose hands down if we voted on it. But you know what? We would all lose. Because on our own, we are all out of place. We find our beauty in the body. We find our function in the family. That's why he says in verse 21, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. One member of the body is not more important than the other member. Every part of the body plays a pivotal role. Imagine your poor feet. Imagine what you do to your feet every day. You stuff them in socks every morning. You cover them up with cool looking shoes. Nobody sees them. Nobody appreciates them. It'd be terrible to be a feet or a foot. What happens though when that foot develops a blister? Boy, suddenly pain preoccupies the whole body. The whole body shuts down. You can't move. Because of the pain in that foot, the whole body feels defeated. I coach Little League. And on my Little League team, you quickly discover that everybody wants a pitch. You know, if they had their way, you'd end up with nine pitchers. But what kind of team would that make? How good are we going to be if we have nine pitchers? We have no fielders, no 
No catchers. And this can be a problem in the church. If everyone wants to pitch, how can we be a successful team? You see, God is the manager. God is the one who decides the positions. That's why he says in verse 18, God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. The key to fulfillment in your Christian life is to find your God-appointed place in the body of Christ. Find your place. You'll gain great fulfillment, great comfort, knowing you're doing what God has called you to do. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 29 and 30 prove that not all Christians will speak in tongues. We'll all be filled with the Holy Spirit, hopefully, but not all will speak in tongues. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? And of course, the obvious answer to all of those questions is what? It's no. Therefore, what's the answer to the next question? Do all speak with tongues? And of course, again, the answer is no. Verse 31 does tell us, though, earnestly desire the best gifts. Hey, we need to desire spiritual gifts. Guys, if you don't ask, you probably won't receive. If you don't seek, you probably won't find. But you know, there is something more vital, Paul says, than spiritual gifts. He closes chapter 12. Yet I show you a more excellent way. And that's what Paul discusses in chapter 13. The best gift of all. The gift of love. He begins by addressing some charismatic conceit. We've all met people who thought they were better than others because they spoke in tongues or because they received words of knowledge. But Paul says, so what if you speak in tongues? So what if you prophesy? So what if you have faith to move mountains? Man, if you lack love, you are nothing. Zip. Zilch, nada. Ironically, the Corinthians prove that the demonstration of spiritual gifts fails to measure a person's spiritual maturity. The Corinthians prove that you can be charismatic and carnal at the very same time. The real mark of a spirit-filled believer, understand this, it's not tongues, it's love. And Paul describes real love in verses 4 through 8. It's patient. It's genuine. It comes with no strings attached. It's humble. It never gets jealous or clamors for attention. It's unselfish. Love doesn't get frustrated. Love doesn't look for a reason to give up. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Often we try to persuade the people we love. Sometimes we resort to lesser methods. We try to intimidate. Maybe we try to manipulate. But we need to remember the best change agent is love. Never stop loving, guys. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, they'll all pass away. In eternity, there'll be no use for these spiritual gifts. But love will last forever. Love never fails. Often folks opposed to supernatural gifts in the church today will quote chapter 13, verse 10, to explain why spiritual gifts shouldn't be expected today. They say, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And they teach that that which is perfect or complete is the New Testament body of Scripture, the canon of Scripture. 
But that is not true. You see, the Bible tells us all we need to know. But it doesn't tell us all there is to know. That's why that's not that which is perfect or complete. It's not the New Testament scriptures. That which is perfect is not the canon, it's heaven. See, until we walk golden streets, we need all of the spiritual gifts. The gifts are relevant, applicable, needed and necessary for us today. Verse 12 says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. When is that? When is that which is perfect? It's when we get to heaven. That's when these things will pass away, but not before. He says, and now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is. It's love, right? Chapter 14 deals with the vocal gifts, prophecy, tongues and interpretation of tongues. Verse 3 teaches that prophecy has three benefits. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. In other words, prophecy builds up. It stirs up. It cheers up. Prophecy is a spontaneous, supernatural utterance. Whereby God conveys a message through us. He puts the words into our mind. We speak them forth by faith. They build up. They stir up. They cheer up the body of Christ. Tongues, on the other hand, is a praise or a prayer to God. Verse 2 and 3 teach us something very important. It teaches us that prophecy is God speaking to man, whereas tongues is man speaking to God. Paul explains the mechanics of the gift of tongues in verse 14. He says, For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. In other words, it's my heart, not my head that's praying. Now, there are times in my worship where I just can't find the right words to express my feelings and my love and my adoration for God. You see, the only language that I know of is English. And quite frankly, I know very little of that one language. God's vocabulary, though, is limitless. He knows the exact phrase to match my mood at any given time. And in my moments of frustration, God will stream words into my mind that I may not necessarily understand. But if I trust God and I utter those words, the unknown tongue will bring release to my emotions, release to my feelings, and my stumbling speech will suddenly become fluent praise. It's a wonderful gift. Worshiping, tongue, worshiping God without the gift of tongues is like going to a football game with your mouth taped shut. You, you'll see the game, but you're not going to enjoy it a whole lot. You can't express your feelings. You can't shout. You can't cheer. You can't yell. You can't get into the game. The gift of tongues, in essence, strips the tape off your mouth and it allows you to praise God with all you've got. I encourage you. To seek the gift of tongues. Ask God to give it to you. So that it might enhance and benefit your worship of God. Verse 4 mentions a major difference between, between tongues and prophecy. He says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies 
edifies the church. You see, tongues is the one gift that benefits the individual rather than the whole of the body. Tongues benefits the speaker, but not the people who happen to hear it. To them, it's all just gibberish. This is why he concludes in verse 18. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. What he is saying here is that in his own private devotional life, he enjoys tongues. He speaks in tongues. But when he gathers with the other believers in a public forum, in the public assembly, he would rather speak in known languages where he can teach and instruct and encourage others. I believe the place for the gift of tongues is not the public assembly of the church, but rather in a person's private devotions and in small groups where the gift is understood and where it can be interpreted, as he will later tell us. Verse 21 is an interesting verse. It quotes Isaiah. When the Jews heard foreign tongues in the streets of their cities, it meant to them that God had brought an invading army into their city in order to bring judgment upon them. And that's why Paul says in verse 22, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Unknown tongues is still a sign of judgment. It was in the Old Testament and it is today. You see, when a person who's uninformed about these things, or when an unbeliever enters the public assembly of the church, and when they hear someone speaking in tongues, what happens? They they kind of freak out. It becomes proof to them that they're not in tune with spiritual things, that they don't understand what's going on here. And their ignorance brings judgment upon them. But why would we want to judge that unbeliever before he had the opportunity to hear the good news of God's love? Why not preach to him the word of God? Why not try to stir up his faith? Why not try to lead him to the Lord rather than present something to him that's going to bring judgment upon him? The gift of tongues might scare him off. He hears the strange language. He thinks we've all flipped and he never returns. What good has that done? That's what Paul says in verse 23. He says, will they not say you are out of your mind? What good is that? This is why Calvary Chapel, we discourage the gift of tongues in our public assemblies. Our purpose here is to worship God and to study His Word. Verses 26 through 40 describes, though, the proper protocol for the smaller participatory meetings, the home fellowships, where the gift of tongues is allowed and encouraged. The overarching rule here is in verse 26. He says, let all things be done for edification. The goal is the betterment of everyone, not just the gratification of a few. That's the purpose of Paul's parameters that he lays out. Notice verse 27. He says, let there be just two or three utterances in tongues and each in turn. In other words, Paul forbids the chaos of everyone speaking in tongues all at the same time. Verse 28 adds that each tongue should be interpreted. And if there's nobody present with the gift of interpretation, then it's time to turn off the tongues. Which implies an important point, and that is that a spiritual gift is controlled by the person, the person isn't controlled by the gift. Don't blurt out in tongues and then say, oh, I couldn't help it, the Spirit just made me. 
No, here he tells us that you control the volume. You control the on and off switch. You even control the reverb. As Paul puts it in verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The meaning at Corinth had become a charismatic free-for-all. Chaos reigned. And that's why Paul says in verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Always remember that. Let all things be done, he says, decently and in order. In chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul summarizes the gospel and he lists a few of Jesus' resurrection appearances. He was seen by Peter, by the twelve, by 500 eyewitnesses at the same time, by James, by the apostles, and finally by Paul. Overwhelming evidence indeed for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. Why did he feel that way? He says it was because he persecuted the church. He wrecked havoc to the cause of Christ before he came to know the Lord. And he admits in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In essence, Paul is saying, I am the poster boy for God's grace. His life was a testimony to the power of grace to change an individual. You've heard of the so-called self-made man. Paul was a grace-made man. That's what I want to be. In verse 12, Paul deals with another Corinthian miscue. The believers were questioning the resurrection of the dead. That our bodies will overcome death. You see, the Greeks viewed the human body as a cage for man's spirit. They saw no need for the body. Upon death, the spirit was set free. But the Jews and the Christians, they believed in the resurrection of the body. That final victory consisted not of escaping the flesh, but of reshaping the flesh. When Jesus returns, my corpse will be transformed and I'll be clothed in a glorified body. Paul tells the Corinthians, the resurrection is the foundation of their faith. Take it away and all of the tenets of Christianity crumble like a house of cards. Notice the chain reaction that he mentions in these verses. He says, without a bodily resurrection, Jesus isn't resurrected. And if Jesus isn't resurrected, our faith is futile. And if our faith is futile, we're still in our sin. And if we're still in our sin, there's no hope for the loved ones who have died before us. And if there's no hope for the loved ones who've died before us, buddy, there's no hope for us. And that's why he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, everything central to our faith hinges on a physical resurrection from the dead. In chapter 15, verse 20, Paul calls Jesus the resurrection's first fruit. He was the first one to be resurrected, but we will one day follow suit. In verse 36, Paul compares our present body to a seed. First, the seed dies in the ground in order to sprout forth the wheat. My wife likes to plant bulbs, these ugly, gnarly, twisted bulbs. And it's hard to realize that such ugly things will soon sprout beautiful flowers. 
Likewise, our ugly, gnarly, twisted bodies must die in order for us to receive a new body, a new improved model. I like the tombstone that reads, budded on earth to bloom in heaven. That's true for all of us. In verses 39 through 40, Paul says that there are different types of bodies. They're heavenly bodies, they're earthly bodies. Earthly bodies are made for earth. A heavenly body is what's made for heaven. One day we'll shed these earth suits that we're currently wearing. And God will clothe us with a body fit for his glory. Fit for the heavenly highs. A heavenly, spiritual, glorified body. Once I was visiting a man who had cancer. It was just before he died. And I remember asking him if there was anything that I could do for him. And he told me, he said, no, not unless you can get me another body. And I said, well, I know a friend who can. That's what Jesus is going to do for us. He is going to give us new bodies one day. These bodies that were sown in corruption will one day be raised incorruptible. These earthly bodies will be transformed and they'll become heavenly bodies. Verse 48 says that the old bod that's from the sod will be a new bod made by God. Isn't that neat? The old is sowed in death so that the new can sprout to eternal life. Verse 49 says that we'll be clothed in a body just as Jesus was after his resurrection. Isn't that great? Think about Jesus after his resurrection. And that's the kind of body we're going to have. A body unlimited by time and space. A body that can dematerialize and pass through walls. A body that can travel at the speed of thought. How about that? A body that's just as comfortable in heaven as it is on earth. I can't wait to trade in my old body for the new model God has for me. Verse 50 tells us why the resurrection is such a necessity. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. If you were to go to heaven right now in your corruptible body, you couldn't handle it. You'd be consumed by the glory of God. To enjoy God's wonderland, we need a body capable of taking in all the heavenly highs that we're going to be exposed to. And verse 51 tells us how this transformation of the body is going to take place. It's going to happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. And a twinkle's even faster than a blink. At the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be changed instantly. We will be transformed in that second. When Jesus returns to rapture the church, our new bodies will finally be delivered to us. This is why Paul taunts death. In verse 55, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? You see, Jesus has taken the sting out of death. You see, death is the only pest that bites or that stings before it bites. Did you know that? There is a sting to death. I think the worst aspect of death is not that it ends life, but that it spoils life before it ends it. You see, death affects us long before we die. There's a sting to death. It casts a cloud over the good times, knowing that one day they're going to come to an end. Wealth and fame lose its luster, knowing we can't take it with us. 
Death terminates friendships. Death busts up homes. Death creates missed opportunities. Death produces unsolvable regrets. But the hope we have in Jesus assures us that death can no longer take anything of real and lasting value from the child of God. Jesus has given us the victory. Now we get the last laugh. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Which leads to Paul's conclusion in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast. Never give up. Be immovable. Never give in. Always abound in the work of the Lord. Never give out. Never give up. Never give in. Never give out. For you and me, guys, the best is yet to come. The church in Jerusalem had fallen on some hard times. And Paul was collecting an offering from the Gentiles. And in chapter 16, he asked the Corinthians to participate in that offering. Paul hopes to come and visit Corinth after he goes to Macedonia. But he qualifies it in verse 7, as the Lord permits. All his plans, notice, were contingent on the Lord's approval. At the time, Paul was in Ephesus. And in verse 9, he explains why he couldn't leave. He says, a great and an effective door has opened to me. He tried to send Apollos. Instead, he sent Timothy. And he tells the Corinthians to give them give him a warm welcome when he comes. Paul tells the church in chapter 16, verse 14. He says, let all that you do be done with love. If I had one word for our church tonight, I think that would be it. Let all that we do be done with love. The greatest gift is love. After thanking the Corinthians for the offering they sent him, after greeting his friends, after signing his name, finally, in verse 22, Paul closes his letter. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then he cries, oh, Lord, come. And if we were reading it in the Aramaic, The word would be Maranatha. Maranatha. What a tremendous battle cry for the Christian. Maranatha. Lord, come. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're looking for. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these chapters that we've covered. Covered a lot of ground tonight. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to hide your word in our hearts. That we might not sin against you. Father, thank you for our journey through the Bible. For our survey. And Lord, we pray that you'll continue to bless us and guide us as we move on through the New Testament into 2 Corinthians. Speak to our hearts, Lord, as we go. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.